0: better way to do this, let me show you a better way, well
1: hi folks, this is Jack Go with another edition of the Survival Podcast, it's always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, times get tougher, even if they don't, it is Friday, August the 18th, 2023, this is episode 3,000 357, 357, that's a fun cartridge. Anyway, 3,357 times we've gotten together to do an episode of this show, and we're going to do that again today, and with it being a Friday, we're going to hear from the expert council In the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, Dr. Paul and Dan McAdams will talk about how NATO is finally admitting that things are going badly for Ukraine. NATO's finally admitting it. They knew. They've known the whole time. The latest casualty estimate that I've heard for Ukraine in this war is 400,000 men. That's not wounded, that's dead. 400,000. A whole generation butchered and damned. So they'll talk about that. Then Dan and Ron will also talk about how our money is, you know going to Ukraine versus Hawaii, and I'll say a little bit on that. And Chris Rossini will talk about the legal counterfeiting of the dollar by the banking system and how it destroys our finances. I won't say much about that because it actually ties in well with my Anchor segment today. Dr. Ken Berry will talk about athletes and keeping energy high. Uh, when went on the keto diet. It's really not a problem at all. It does take some time to adapt if you're switching from a carbohydrate-based diet to a fat and protein-based diet where the body adjusts. But once that happens, it, it, it pretty much is a non, non-issue. Josh the Renegade Butcher will talk about keeping wild game meat in good shape when on ice for transport. Nick Ferguson will talk about greenhouses versus hoop houses versus shade houses for backyard nurseries. John Pugliano will talk about finding a good dividend-paying stock for you for yourself. Sean Mills will talk about using a well for geothermal heating and cooling in a chicken house. Uh, I'm going to tell you the idea that was floated that Sean tried to answer I don't think will work. And I'll give you some thoughts. I don't really have an answer either. Uh, But maybe somebody out there might have an idea of how to get this done. Um, I, I think mainly one of the issues that Sean has is he read liters per minute and the air pumps that we're discussing generally are specified in liters per hour. I'll try to clear that up, and we can see if there's a way to do this. And uh, I'm, my anchor segment is titled, If we're going to have an insurrection, we better know who the actual enemy is. And I'm going to talk about what I see as something that people just think is just young people complaining, and it's organic, and it's typical. But I see it as a disturbing trend. I think the government is getting ready to go full on with even more socialism because it's worked so good up till now and more money printing because it's worked so good up till now. And what they're doing is they are creating these, these young people who are making these videos and shit where everybody's sad and holding on to their cup of coffee and I don't know I'm going to live. I don't even understand anymore. And the whole message there really is, well, the government should fix it. Well, the government effed it up. Sort of. Because that's what we're going to talk about today. The sort of nature that the government messed it up. You know what actually messed it up? It all goes back to that year I keep mentioning, 1971. Uh, I'm going to recommend it today, after you hear my segment. You go look up a website. And it is WTF happened in 1971.com. And that way when I tell you all the things I'm going to tell you and you're thinking, that can't be right, you can go look at the graphs for yourself and you can see how right it is. If we are going to talk about revolution, insurrection, call it whatever you want to, actually taking our our country back, and and frankly our humanity back, our freedoms back, our liberty back, our, our right to exist back, then you better realize who the enemy is. And the enemy, it is the government, but the real enemy. The real problem is the banking system. The banking system that in uh, Chris Rossini's words, you'll hear in just a second, legally counterfeits our money. With that, let's talk about that. Here we go. We'll start out again with the Ron Paul Liberty highlights, hearing from uh, Dr. Paul and Dan really teaming up on the first two segments, and then Chris Rossini on the third.
2: But we're going to talk today about... How do you end wars, yeah, and uh, I came to a quick conclusion after thinking about this that all all wars that are started badly end badly, yeah. and uh, I would say that uh, we've now gone many, many decades. Where we have rejected the notion that we should be cautious about going into war, and uh, essentially never, never quit fighting the war. The war goes on and on, and it even, uh, you know, transfers into uh, economic wars and trade wars. So it's a conflict that, in a libertarian society, I would think we would deal with it quite differently, and hopefully a lot more peacefully than what we have now.
3: Yeah, it's it's interesting, and people might say when you when you suggested that. This is a war that started badly, that will end badly. They might say, well, hang on a minute. Russia invaded out of the blue in an unprovoked manner. But it started badly in 2014 when the U.S. was behind the coup and was pushing them, and then for intervening almost 10 years when it was arming and training Ukraine to fight Russia. That's how it started badly, and it probably will end badly. But what's interesting, we can actually put the the article up, because this was Stian Jensen, who is the chief of staff, to NATO Secretary General Jen Stoltenberg. So he's a high ranking official. He's very close to Stoltenberg. It's very doubtful that he would speak off the cuff uh, without at least having his finger in the air knowing which ways the wind's blowing in Brussels. Uh, but he told a Norwegian magazine VG that quote, "I think that a solution could be for Ukraine to give up territory, and get NATO membership in return and then he was asked afterward he was asked after he said this has this been uh, discussed uh, in NATO and they said that yes there have been discussions about this so it's very interesting and it's not interesting because of that nature of the deal because it's a non-starter from the beginning for a number of reasons we'll get into Uh, but the fact that NATO is talking about this obviously or he wouldn't have opened his mouth about it the fact that they're talking about this means that they have started to have that realization or at least to articulate the realization that things are not going well and as you started out by saying this war is going to end badly we were talking about that 24 billion dollars to ukraine that we weren't sure maybe congress won't pass it maybe the house will wake up but well, while we were doing that, while we were snoozing, Biden found some money to send <laughs> over there. Put that next one up if you can. New U.S. arms package for Ukraine uses money made available at, by a Pentagon accounting error. Remember that? We talked about that, Dr. Paul. They, they, they misaccounted for $6 billion. Uh, and so now they've sent $200 million of those dollars in munitions over to Ukraine. Uh, they found the money and they're sending it over. We would add, and you suggested something like this, in your column this week that they've I guess agreed they've agreed to give seven hundred dollars for every family in Maui who's been torched but they which is not very much if you just lost your house but they're giving another two hundred million dollars to Ukraine in a losing battle
2: a system like that and what we've had is doomed to self- destruct and I think that is what we're witnessing and that's why it is going to be tough sailing and yeah we do and we've quite frequently have pointed out, you know, the good signs that are that, uh, are, are coming, that uh, there are more people waking up and, you know, people finally did get upset with COVID, but uh, there's a lot more necessity for more Americans to wake up and become aware of what's really happening to our country.
4: Yeah. yeah, it is the counterfeiting of money by the banking system, not just the Fed. The commercial banks also create money out of thin air. Um, yeah, and they do it as you mentioned through the loan market. And I like to give the following example because uh, it's easy to understand how this works. Uh, imagine your local supermarket. Uh, you know, you have a bag of chips there. That's the market price is five dollars every day. You go in and out. Chips are five bucks. But one day the uh, supermarket suppresses the price down to twenty-five cents from five dollars. You know, by the time you find out. About that, and you get there, you know, the shelf will be empty. People will scoop them up at 25 cents on a bag, and the shelf is empty because the supermarket can't create chips out of thin air. So once the shelf is empty, that's it; they're gone. Well, the same principles apply to interest rates. Let's say the market rate is 7%. That's what the market, uh, you know, can bear at the moment. But the Fed says, no, we're going to fix it at 1%. So, again, just as people rush to go get those cheap chips, people rush into the banks to get cheap loans, 1%. But unlike the chips, the banks don't run out of dollar digits. They can create as many digits as as they want. So more and more borrowers go, and they're taking all this money, and all this money is being counterfeited into the economy. And the people, they spend them on crazy things. Every stupid idea that's uneconomic gets funding at 1% because everything looks good at 1%. So it distorts the economy. It drives up prices because now you have all this new money and not new goods have been created. And that's how it messes up the entire economy. And this is all from this simple idea that it's legal and okay for the banking system, the Fed, and the commercial banks to counterfeit money.
1: Yeah, I I think that to look at this issue with the the Russia-Ukraine conflict here, you have to ask yourself why we did what we did in the first place to truly understand what's going on and what's likely to happen next. In 2014, not only did we overturn an election, the other thing that happened was we created a false diplomacy with Russia. A false diplomacy with Russia and the Donbass region. That basically said we will allow the Donbass to exist with some level of autonomy. It will still be part of Ukraine, but it will basically be a region onto itself. And that was never honored. And that is when this war began. It began as a civil war between a a small region of eastern ukraine and the rest of the country. And we are not the good guys in this. But let's put that aside who the good guys are, cuz I don't know that there are any honestly other than the people of donbass that just want to be left out alone. Okay, they might be the only good guys in this at all. But what we did is we did a head fake. We pretended we pretended um that the, the Minsk Accord meant something, which it never did. And since then, uh, Merkel, a former PM of Germany, has admitted publicly, and at least several other uh, leaders have admitted publicly, that all it was was a stall tactic so that we could heavily arm and train Ukraine. So you have to understand that's what happened. We, we, we made a deal that, that the Ukrainians weren't even part of on behalf of Ukraine, that we knew we were not going to honor. And then we armed the shit out of the Ukrainians. And I think Putin believed that the Ukrainians were on the verge of themselves coming into Donbass with full-on force. And that was part of why he did what he did. That's not good or bad on either side. That just is. That just is. But why would we do this? Why would we do this? It is because we view Vladimir Putin... And Russia as a threat now I'm not saying we as in us me and you I'm saying we as America and NATO view Putin as a threat and I think what they thought is they could lure Putin's troops into a meat grinder and let these two countries fight it out and seriously weaken Russia that's why we did we did this calculated sure the Ukrainians will lose hundreds of thousands of men but so will Putin the problem with that plan is it didn't work, it's not working, and this is where NATO and the rest of the West are now looking for a way to extract themselves from the mess that they created. The Russians did not full-on invade Ukraine, they used a tremendous amount of restraint, I know some of you get mad when I say that, but the fact that Kyiv exists, okay, is proof that restraint has been used. There are, If you go search for them, you'll find a bunch of bullshit saying they're not real, but they are real. You'll find countless videos right now of women decked to the nines in Kiev at nightclubs dancing the night away. There is no war in Kiev. There never really has been. There were some skirmishes at the beginning. It was part of the overall strategy. That basically, Putin was using his equivalent of the National Guard. And it was a distraction. And what happened is Russia took the territory that they have, and it bought them time to completely fortify the lines. And the meat grinder is there. It's just a one-sided meat grinder. It's a one-sided meat grinder. Ukraine is losing probably 10-1 to on men, both to death and to injury to the point of being disabled and no longer to continue. And Russia has a much bigger country with a lot more people. Right? Who couldn't have seen this coming? Who didn't t- Did I tell you this is what we would end up with? I did. Not because I'm a genius, not because I'm, you know, Spargo because duh. Just do the math on this. But NATO in their arrogance believed that this would turn into a two-sided meat grinder and they d- they did not mind a whole generation being butchered and damned. And now what they actually have is a stronger Putin and a stronger Russia. You can try to twist that. The media damn sure does. But the reality is Putin is probably more popular in Russia than ever. Life in Russia is like life in Russia always has been for the average Russian. They, they are. Th- you have to think about this. Even though that war is right on their border, the average Russian thinks about that war as to it affecting them unless they are conscripted or in the military or have a family member who was about as much as the average American really thought about the Iraq War a couple of years into it. That's eh, going on over there. i got my own shit to worry about. And now we are trying to figure out how to get out of it and try to claim some victory. And I don't, like, I think that they alluded to this, but this idea, well, okay, Ukraine gives up Donbass and then they get to join NATO. This is, this is a... Delusion. This is a delusion. Hate Putin? So, so Putin, like him. I don't care which one you fall on. The one thing you should have figured out about Russia as a whole, and Putin in particular right now, is a red line is a red line is a red line. It's not like an Obama red line. where, are oh, we'll back it up a little bit. We didn't really mean it. It's kind of a pink line, maybe a little gray. I don't know. No, a red line is a red line. And a NATO country like Ukraine, with a history of corruption and violence, like Ukraine on Russia's border, is a non-starter. It is a non-starter. How could this have all been avoided? Well, they should have tried to bring uh, Ukraine into NATO. But the most common sense thing that they could have done was to carve out for Donbass and made them an independent nation in respect of their borders. They wouldn't be part of Russia now, and they are, no matter how many times they tell you they're not. And Ukraine would have remained very much allegiant to the U.S. and NATO without having to put Ukraine in NATO. And that would have created a buffer nation between Ukraine and Russia, and Putin would not have invaded. That doesn't mean it, it's it was the best thing to do overall. If we want to do the best thing overall, we have to rewind about a hundred years here. Okay? This has been going on. But... One thing you have to take away from this, you have to take away from this, or you cannot understand it. Every time they talk about democracy in Ukraine, they are lying. Ukraine is not a democracy. Democracies do not ban opposition parties. Democracies do not suspend elections. Democracies do not take opposition leaders and throw them in jail. Democracies do not throw priests and nuns in jail for speaking against a war. Democracies do not ban the use of a language. They may have an official language, but they don't say you can't speak or use the other language, especially when the two languages are so close, most people can't tell them apart unless they're fluent in one of them. Okay, Democracies don't do these things. Democracies do not behave like this. Ukraine is not a democracy. And until you accept that, you cannot analyze this and understand what actually is going on. Not only is Ukraine not a democracy, if you think Zelensky's in charge, you don't understand why they put an actor in the part. NATO's in charge. Ukraine is NATO, all save for officially on the treaty document. NATO is running Ukraine right now. The NATO nations and the United States, which is part of NATO, obviously, are calling all the shots. All the shots. They've suspended elections because the Ukrainian people are tired of having their sons die. And I guarantee you, if an election were held in Ukraine, Zelensky would be out, and someone who promised to end the conflict would be in. And we don't only not believe in the right of self-determination of the people of the donbass who have voted over 90% to be part of Russia. We don't believe in the right of self-determination for Ukraine. Like I said, I'll save my thoughts on money, but if you want to know who the enemy is, if you want to have a revolution, if you want to take back your freedom and liberty, you better figure out who the enemy is. You better figure out who it is. All right, let's move on with something a little more uh, practical. Dr. Ken Berry, who we haven't heard from a while, talking about the keto diet or the carnivore diet and athletes and maintaining energy levels.
5: Hey, Jack and the TSP crew, this is Dr. Ken Berry answering a question today from Brian. Brian says, my daughter is starting her sophomore year at high school next month and is planning on taking her lunch. She has just started eating the proper human diet and would like suggestions on what to take for lunches so she doesn't eat the same three things all the time. She does not have access to a microwave or any way to heat anything after she leaves the house. She is also a power lifter and is an athletic trainer for football. So she is concerned about keeping energy throughout the day. She has to be at school starting at 5.30 a.m. until 3.30 p.m., thanks. So let's do this in reverse order. First of all, the the keeping energy throughout the day question. What she's going to find when she becomes keto-adapted, she's been eating a proper human diet for two or three weeks, is that she doesn't have energy dips at all, uh, including when she doesn't eat at all. And this is one of the superpowers that eating a proper human diet gives you is you don't have that after lunch crash where you wanna take a nap. And it, at 3 p.m., 4 p.m., 5 p.m., you're not, you're not tanking like most people do who are still eating a high carbohydrate diet. So don't worry about that. Uh, but she has to get keto adapted first before that's gonna really take full effect. Now, what can she take? So obviously, beef, butter, bacon, and eggs. Uh, you can take, and I don't know if she's keto or carnivore, so let's just pretend she's keto. So any variation of a hamburger plus or minus veg, uh, any variation of a hot dog plus or minus veg, zero carb mustard, uh, bacon in a Ziploc bag is an excellent lunch or lunch add-on, boiled eggs. Uh, she can scramble up a bunch of eggs. I'm sure she has access to a fork there. Uh, she can have a Cobb salad. And hold the lettuce. That's what my wife Nisha does when she goes to a fancy restaurant. You should see the waiter's face when she asks for double egg, double bacon, double cheese, double avocado, and hold the lettuce. It's, it's, it's a, it's a prime moment of entertainment for me. Also, another great thing I love to do is get sliced roast beef. And if you're trying to stay carnivore, then she can just squirt some zero carb sugar free mustard in each slice and then roll it up so she's got like a little roast beef roll but if she's keto she can add some sliced up bell pepper a little bit of tomato uh some uh asparagus any number of things she can put in her roast beef roll up and she can also do this with any deli meat all of which are healthy and fine whether it's ham or turkey or chicken but roast beef is my personal favorite but i think that you may be freaking out here a little bit when you stop and relax and take a breath and actually think about this. You're going to be able to think of hundreds of things that she can take to school with her that do not require reheating while at school. Hope this helps and best of luck to your daughter in her power lifting. This is Dr. Barry. I'll talk to you guys next time.
1: Yeah, I completely agree with Ken's assessment. I also will tell you there are uh, athletes that are more of like endurance type athlete uh, types and all that are keto in their daily lives and tend to use a little bit of uh, carbohydrate prior to uh, athletic performance. Uh, specifically, again, not so much to power short-term athletics, but things that are more like long-distance running and things like that. Yeah, I don't think it's necessary, but it you're you're, you're talking about a person that's not going to have health issues because of it, if they wanted to do that. Moving on, let's talk about meat. Meat from the field. I had Jim Shockey on this week, and we talked about how hunters eat like kings. But if you're going to do that, you've got to get the meat home. You've got to keep it cold so it doesn't spoil. You've got to put it on ice, and that presents some unique challenges. With that, Josh, take it away.
6: Hey there, TSP and Jack. How are you guys doing? It's Josh the Renegade Butcher. I have another question to answer here on the TSP Expert Council. Thankfully, this came in just right when I needed to get Jack some more content. And it's perfect timing for this question because we're coming up on hunting season very soon, guys, in most parts of the country. So, don't mind the geese in the background. They're excited. Anyways, not about hunting season, I'm sure. Thankfully, we won't be hunting them. Uh, so, anyways, great question. Joe writes in says, I have a question for Josh Renegade Butcher about storing and transporting wild game while hunting. I'm getting ready for my first deer-slash-bear hunt in the next few weeks. There seems to be two schools of thought about storing game in coolers. One uses bags or other means to separate the meat from the actual moisture, while the other has the meat sitting directly in the ice-slash-water with a daily drain and refill. I'm curious, what's Josh's advice for storing game in coolers, especially if it may be for a few days before I can get to processing? All right. That is a great question. And I wish more people would ask me this because if you've ever dealt with somebody who's a deer processor and you ask them their opinion on this, you're probably going to get a similar kind of response. It's, uh, it's one of the hardest things we have to deal with. Um, folks generally who are out hunting don't come from a background of food processing. So we tend to hold ourselves to a certain standard that, uh, It can be a little hard to see the way sometimes some meat comes in and how you handle that in this scenario, especially is extremely important. Um, this is why when you're processing something that you, uh, you know, raise at home, uh, starting from that get go, how you handle the slaughter is paramount because it's the foundation to everything else. Well, when you're hunting, you're in charge of the slaughter. So I'm glad you asked this. Um, the main concern here when it comes to the uh, the bagging is trying to keep that moisture off the meat, and I think that is a great thing. If you've ever seen, well, I should back up a moment here and say that this is probably confusing for half the audience. There's a good portion of the country when it comes to hunting deer, and the fact you mentioned bear makes me think maybe you're in a more northern area, so this is possibly relevant to you too, but uh, there are some southern warm regions where bear hunting does happen. Uh, that said... Where I grew up, it was almost unheard of to take the deer meat and put it in an ice chest. It was usually something they'd hang from a tree and maybe wrap it in a, a game bag, which was basically a breathable bag that uh, keep the flies off. But generally, the outside temperatures overnight were about like a walk-in cooler, possibly down below freezing at times. Your meat was going to be just fine as long as you kept the coyotes away and you didn't have flies laying eggs on it. We don't get that opportunity down here in the South, and you'll see many debates online about this. It's, it can be com, com, quite heated, and most of the time, half the people, like most internet debates, have no idea what they're talking about while they're very heatedly defending their positions on the matter. Uh, so from a professional standpoint, try don't soak your deer meat. <laughs> don't do it on purpose. It's extremely important that you keep that meat as clean as possible, which I'll touch on that in a minute, uh, but also that you try to get it cooled as quickly as possible. So it it is better to get it into icy water or wet ice than not if you don't have another choice. But ideally, we want this ice to stay as dry as possible. We want the water to move away from the meat. So what you want is a really good bed of ice in the bottom of your cooler. If you have access to some sort of a rack that you can put in the bottom of the cooler, that is even better because that will allow water to drain below the lowest point, and then your meat's not sitting ever in a pool of water. But a good bed of ice on the bottom. Layer your meat in. Leave lots of room for that meat, to, that heat to escape. Don't pile it up. You can add another layer of ice in if it's a deep enough ice chest, uh, which I should say ice chest because cooler could be confused for walking cooler. It's a regional thing. It's a pop and soda sort of debate, depending on where you're at in the country. However, I know exactly what you mean. But if you can do a few layers, great. You want to have space between all of those sections of meat. What you don't want is for that ice to all melt off and make this soup <laughs> that your, uh, your deer meat soaks in, uh, where you drain it off every couple of days and then add more ice and then drain it and add more ice. The ideal situation is to have the cooler on a bit of a slope with the drain downhill, the drain open, and then monitor it and add ice again as necessary to make sure everything stays cool, but allow that moisture to drain away. There there are multiple reasons that you don't want your meat to have to sit in this ice. When we take meat and we put it into a refrigerated scenario in water, what do we have? We have a marinade. The point of a marinade is either going to be to tenderize meat to leach out some off flavors that are there, to introduce other flavors. But how's that work? It's because meat suspended in water begins to equalize with it. Salinity, everything else within it, it just absorbs it. It becomes one with the liquid to an extent. So anything that's in that water, which includes anything that was on the surface of any of the meat, if while you were in the field processing this deer, you had feces, hair, dirt, dust, pollen, anything that you didn't want on that meat touched any portion of it, it's all throughout all of the water now. And if it's bacteria, it's now introduced throughout it. So as soon as the sun hits that cooler because you didn't leave it in the shade and putting it in the truck bed was convenient or something, and that temperature rises above 45, 50 degrees, that bacteria begins to propagate all throughout the surface of everything that's in that water. So we see spoilage happen very quickly. Uh, The other thing is, people seem to have this idea, especially in some climates, and I think it's a a result of that uh, that Southern necessity to have to use ice chests when we're hunting uh, during this time of the year, people have gotten in this traditional idea that because that's how Grandpa has always had to do it, um, we can get rid of that nasty gamey taste, which I'm sure Jack will agree with me, gamey is not a flavor. We, that taste is generally spoilage. What they're doing is they're adding something like you'll hear guys with all kinds of crazy ideas. They'll have uh, they'll have vinegar, they'll have uh, lemon juice, they'll have oranges, they'll have all kinds of stuff that uh, buttermilk that they will soak the meat in as a marinade to get rid of the gamey taste. Which is really all you're doing is trying to mask the taste of the spoilage that was introduced by improper handling. So, keeping the meat clean, allowing the water to drain away so the meat is not contaminating itself. These are huge, paramount things. Another very, very important thing that you can do that really helps, and I've learned this even more so when it comes to, say, tricking a deep freezer into working as a as a cooler for a pig or whatnot. You can put a temperature regulator on it. This does work, folks. We've done it quite a few times. But remember, heat rises. Heat will rise like a gas. If you take that lid on an ice chest, which is going to be the same as a, a deep freeze, and you crack it open for a few hours, and you leave it a few inches open, remember that heat rises so that cold stays down with the meat. Your meat's not going to get hot because there's air above it that's warm. What it does allow is all of the body heat that was in that muscle tissue to rise up through that ice, and instead of be trapped in a sealed box with it and melt that ice even faster, it allows it to escape out through the lid. So within a few hours on ice, generally your meat is going to be down To pretty much 32 degrees. Doesn't take much, especially with ice contact. Like I said, it's ideal if you have a rack on the bottom of your your ice chest, but it's not totally necessary. But you try to avoid having it soaking in that water. Um, As far as the plastic bag side goes, it's not a bad idea and it's well intended, but I've seen it go badly so many times. And I will say in practice, if somebody brings in meat that's just been on ice versus somebody who brings it in in bags, Any deer processor worth their salt gets them out of the bags as quick as they can because meat in bags tends to spoil at least a few days faster. It's a strange thing, but it has to do with airflow and has to do with aerobic versus anaerobic environments. Uh, You create a breeding ground for bacteria. The other thing about it is no matter how well sealed that bag seems to be, I've seen some of the best high quality Ziploc bags in the same situation. They always seem to have a way to leak. Water still manages to get in there, and then it stays trapped. So even when you do drop it off at the processor, your meat is soaking and losing flavor and potentially being contaminated. I don't see much benefit, much upside to keeping it in the bags unless it is pre-chilled and dried and then put in the bags. And even then, uh, that's more of a temporary uh, storage solution, like in a refrigerator or something, until you can get around to processing it. So... Um, Those are my tips. That's how I try to handle my meat. Uh, If you have access to a dry cooling, like a walk-in cooler, get it there as soon as possible and try to get it off of that water because the quality of your meat does suffer the more wet it gets, especially something like venison. It's a wonderful meat. You don't need to water it down. You don't want to lose that flavor. It's very valuable. Anyways, guys, uh, I'm going to jump off here. I've got a few more to get recorded. I hope you guys have a wonderful time. Good luck out there hunting. Keep your knife sharp, but keep your mind sharper.
1: I pretty much agree with everything there, including the fact that gamey is not a flavor. Spoiled meat, poorly processed meat, um, residue uh, hormones from hawk glands on your knife blade into the meat that you're cutting, all of those things taste bad. They're not gamey. And I've I've even been challenged by Chef Keith. He's always like, try eating antelope that live on sagebrush in Wyoming. And I have, and they're delicious. You have to process meat correctly. You also have to cook it correctly. That's really not your main to this discussion, but I find that people tend to very much so overcook game meat out of ridiculous, irrational fears. One, of course, is the chronic wasting disease concept, and the reality is to cook a prion to the point where it's no longer dangerous, you have to cook it to about 600 degrees, which means you would incinerate the meat. Because I'm not talking about under a 600 degree broiler, I'm talking about the meat temperature. That you have to get up over 600 degrees Fahrenheit, and I think it might even be higher than that. So, it's irrational and you shouldn't do it. Um, Josh's method that he described, the cooler slightly canted toward the drain, the drain open to allow the water out, monitoring the ice is pretty much what I do. A rack is a good idea. This is actually what I do. I don't like meat in a bag. Okay? I don't. Um, I don't like the meat in contact with the water at all, though. So what I tend to do is I put that big layer of ice down at the bottom of the ice chest that Josh is talking about, and I'll lay a layer of like uh, contractor-grade garbage bag on top of the ice, and then I will set the meat on top of the bag as a layer of separation so the meat can still breathe. And I'll take maybe, you know, I use a big, giant, like, 100-gallon 100, 100, uh, cooler, i take like two more bags of ice and I'll set that on top of the meat, right? And I'll poke little holes in the bags toward the side and kind of set everything. So the bags kind of like their high point is where the two bags come together in the center and the bottom of the bags with a couple little pinholes in them are over to the side that lets that water drain down as those bags melt and go down into that bottom and then drain out the drain hole. And I'm, I will always leave that open, that drain hole. Uh, if you're somewhere where you just can't leave it open constantly, then you need to set like a reminder and like once every hour go drain it wherever you can. The other thing is, like, I, I can't agree anymore th- with the idea that these people debating this don't know what they're talking about. What happens is people learn a thing, they've only seen the thing one way. And you got a guy in Maine. Talking shit to a guy in Florida, and and, and they're both right, and both believe the other one to be wrong. Because they're in different scenarios. And the guy in Maine has never hunted a deer when it's 85 degrees out, and it's 75 degrees overnight. He's never done it. He doesn't know anything about it. He has no idea what he's talking about. And the guy in Florida has never hunted a deer where you could easily hang it in a tree and leave it there for half a freaking week, and the meat will actually get better as it hangs. And I'll tell you, what we here's what we used to do when I grew up in Pennsylvania. If it was cool enough out to allow for it, we would hang the deer in a tree. We didn't even skin it. We would hang that deer skin on in the tree, okay, gutted and allowed to drain out. And we would let it hang for a day or two. We would then move it down into our cellar. There we would skin it. And if it was cold enough, we would let it hang for several more days there. If it wasn't cool enough, then what we would do is we would skin the deer really quickly, break it down into quarters, and then we had an old refrigerator that we would put it in, and we would let it age there. And this is part of why you don't want the water. Water makes meat mushy. If you watch professional butchers and you see how fast they are and you're kind of amazed, one thing you should notice is, I guess you can't know this without knowing this, that meat is cold, but it's also aged, and that makes it hard And when meat is hard, it cuts nice. And that's why you can take a a backstrap with bone on from a deer and take a good sharp knife and just straight down, straight across the bottom and maybe two or three little uh, fitting cuts and then that whole loin is out. That's why you can do it and it looks so nice. And so when you let that water equalize, like Josh was saying, and that water goes into the meat, that meat does not, want to end up set up like that it doesn't age well and I believe in aging my meat and what I do even here I clean out one of the refrigerators when I get the meat home and I put all my cuts not stacked on top of each other so they can breathe and I let that meat firm up and age a little bit until it starts to actually get a little bit of kind of blackening on it and that doesn't take very long it's a couple days and then I process uh, the final processing and just cut size and seal up and freeze. And so I, I won't say anymore because Josh covered things like getting the temperature down initially and things like that. I will tell you, if for instance you're going to take a deer home whole, or to your processor whole, and it's cool enough in general, one of the big things you can do to speed this up is you've got it—you you have to gut it. Put two or three bags of ice right inside the animal, even though it's cold outside. It take that will slow or uh, speed up the the cooling down of the animal. And I've seen that done. I've never had to do it, but it's worked really well. Yeah. And remember, whenever you hear these debates, again, he's right. Most of these people don't know what they're talking about, even if they know what they're talking about in their own life. They don't understand the other party's point of view because they've never seen it. You know, where I hunt now uh, in Texas, the the, the ranch that I hunt on, that I pay to hunt on, they have a walking cooler. This is all moot. You get home from a hunt, you were successful. If you don't feel like skinning a deer that night, you hang it up in the cooler and skin it the next day. It's irrelevant. You don't even care anymore. But if you don't have one, you don't have one. All right, moving on. Let's talk about hoop houses, shade houses, and greenhouses, and backyard nurseries with Nick Ferguson.
7: Nick Ferguson here with another expert counsel answer. This time I'm coming to you from the road on a consulting tour, and hopefully Jack can make this audio work because I don't have my normal setup functional since I'm not home. I'm actually recording this on my cell phone. So let's get into the question. What is the difference between a greenhouse, hoop house, and a shade house, and which would be most important in a backyard nursery? Details. I want to set up a backyard nursery with the goal of selling various plants, but also to develop a pick-your-own blueberry blackberry farm. My plan would be to propagate blueberry bushes and other plants already on my property by using softwood and hardwood cuttings. I would root the cuttings and then grow out for at least a year or two before selling. I have 20 acres in Zone 7B and am on the Georgia-Tennessee state line. Uh, half is open pasture and the rest is thirty-year-old hardwoods. Thanks, Chris in Northwest Georgia. Um, good question, Chris. Um, I'm actually pretty close to Northwest Georgia right now. I was just over in Toccoa, uh earlier today. So, uh, really, the main difference between a greenhouse and a hoop house is the type of construction and materials. Green. Uh, this is kind of generalizing things, so don't like. This isn't like tried and true, like this is the definition. Uh, Greenhouses are often actively heated in the winter, and hoop houses are typically of a little bit lighter construction and meant more for season extension with more of a passive heating. But, you know, like I said, that's not always the case. It's just kind of sometimes that's the only real difference between the two um other times they're basically the same thing a shade house is just shade uh sometimes it could be the same inherent structure as a hoop house or a greenhouse and sometimes it's just posts with a little bit of rafters or joists uh to support the shade cloth sometimes it could just be some shade cloth uh Stretched in between some trees or something like that. So it doesn't offer much in the way of keeping plants warmer in cool weather. Its only real purpose is to keep the plants shaded and cooler during harsh summers. So for your location and for most of the south, the most important thing and best bang for your buck really is going to be a shade house for propagating plants during the summer because those tender cuttings need a lot of protection, especially from intense solar exposure. So greenhouses or hoop houses are fantastic. Don't get me wrong, but if you ask me which one is going to be the best value for the money, I say some kind of shade structure is probably going to get you the most value for the dough. I will say though, if you're building a typical hoop greenhouse structure and just using that structure to cover it up with shade cloth well, then the majority of the investment's already made. And you can always shade the plants under the plastic by spraying the interior film with a layer of kaolin clay with a surfactant. And that, uh, spreads the kaolin clay on the underside of your greenhouse plastic. And that cuts down on the solar gain. It's not gonna be as, um, intensive a shading effect as, let's say, 70% shade cloth would be. You can typically get between 40 and 60% shade with the and clay, but basically that lets you turn a hoop house into an albeit lower quality shade house, but you know, it's a shade structure nonetheless, and that would give you the added benefit of having a warmer place in the winter if you needed it. So I hope that helps shed some light on the question and enables you to move forward with your plans. I'm Nick Ferguson from Homegrown Liberty. Do good things.
1: All moving on, let's talk about picking a good stock for you and specifically looking for a stock that pays dividends with John Pugliano.
8: Hello, TSP. Well, today we have a really good question about dividend-paying stocks, and so I'm going to do my best to give it some good answers, and I'm going to emphasize answers because there's a lot of ways to answer this and different perspectives to take, and I don't have time to get into them all. But I'll try and touch on what I think are the most important. This question is coming from William And this is what he says. How do you determine which dividend-paying stock is best for you? Now, he has three stocks in particular that he's looking at. That's XOM, ExxonMobil, XLE, that's an energy ETF, and PPL. That's a small regional electric utility company, I believe, focused on eastern Pennsylvania. And what he's wondering is, should he take the higher-priced stock with a larger dividend or the lower one with a smaller dividend, and you know, part of that rationale is if he pays less for this stock, then he can buy more of it. Okay, William, the framework that you're looking at on this, especially on the you know price of the stock versus the dividend, it's really the absolute wrong way to look at things. But don't feel bad. Most people do. This is why a lot of people focus on investing in lower-priced stocks because they think they're getting more for their money. Let's step back and not even think about stocks. Let's think about eggs, EGG like duck eggs, chicken eggs. Now imagine that you're going to buy a dozen eggs and they're all the same kind of egg. They're all chicken eggs. They're all duck eggs. So they're eggs. They're a fungible commodity. They're all the same. Now you're going to pay more for 12 eggs than you're going to pay for six eggs. So just because a half dozen eggs cost less money than a dozen eggs doesn't mean that you're getting a better deal by buying only six eggs at a time. In fact, Usually, because things sold in bulk are priced lower on a unit level, you're probably getting a better deal by spending the extra money and buying the dozen eggs instead of the half dozen. But how do you know that? Well, you have to do math. You take the number of eggs you're buying, and you divide it by the amount of dollars that you're paying for those eggs. So then you come up with a unit price. Well, that's the same methodology that you want to take when you look at stocks. It's not the price that you're paying for a particular stock but rather it's how much are you paying to buy that stock in proportion to how much corporate earnings you'll get for it. Then just like the example with eggs, you can determine the unit cost of that profitability. That's how you determine which stock is more valuable than the other based on what you're paying for it, which is the best deal. And so for example, let's say you're evaluating two stocks. One costs $20, one costs 100 Well, the $20 stock is earning a dollar in earnings. So it has a 20 times markup or 20 times price per earnings ratio, right? Because the cost is $20. It's earning $1. 20 divided by one is 20. Now the $100 stock on the other hand is earning $6 a share. Well, 100 divided by six is about little more than 16 and a half. So that higher dollar stock is only selling for about a 16 and a half percent premium where the lower-cost stock is selling for a $20 premium. So in this case, the higher-priced stock is actually the better value. So in the example of the three stocks you gave, they're all paying about the same dividend. It's all around more or less 3.5%, a little more or less. So that's the egg, right? They're all equivalent. They're all fungible in that regards. And your money is going to earn that 3.5% whether you have $100 in there or whether you have $10,000. So as long as you're putting all your money to work, it really doesn't matter. The three stocks you're talking about, they all trade on the low end around $25 and on the higher end around $100. So to the extent if you only had $25 to invest, yeah, you'd be better off putting in a PPL because you could buy one share of that you couldn't buy any shares of XLE or ExxonMobil. But on the other hand, hey, if you only have $25 to invest, what are you doing investing? Uh, Again, that's a topic for another day. But back to your question, since these are all paying roughly around the same dividend, we want to look at what the price per earnings ratio is. And really what's most important is not so much what it was in the past, it's what is it expected to be in the future. Now, the problem with that is that this is a forecast or an estimate into the future. So you won't know with 100% certainty. But, you know, it's the best you have, so you have to deal with it. In the case of the three stocks you gave me, actually one of them is an ETF, and it makes it even harder to calculate what the earnings are. But in terms of the two stocks, PPL is a little bit less than 15 times forward earnings, while ExxonMobil is only a little bit more than 12. And so this is a classic example of where the stock that's selling for $108 a share, ExxonMobil, has a better valuation and therefore is less expensive, than the much cheaper stock, PPL, which is only selling for around $25. Now, that price per earnings ratio is just a very simple way to look at it, but I want to emphasize the importance of what future growth percentages are worth. So it's not only how much you're going to earn next year, but how much will you earn in addition to that in the following year. It's a derivative of earnings looking at constant future growth. Extremely important, but not enough time to get into it right now. Hey, one final thought, and if you listen to my podcast, you know I've talked a lot about this over this past year, and that's taking a step back, and with interest rates being as high as they are, and really the highest we've seen in some 20 years in terms of real rates compared to inflation, now as much as I love dividend-paying stocks, this year I've taken the approach, with all the market uncertainty, of why not just keep the majority of my money in money market funds, which are paying In excess of 5% interest, which is higher than the dividend stocks that you're looking at, and in fact, way higher than the average dividend on the Dow Jones Industrial stocks. And in getting that high dividend in money market funds, you're also receiving the security of not having any market volatility. Your money is safe, it's 100% liquid, and it's paying a fantastic dividend. So I encourage you to take a look at money market funds and consider them, at least for the short term, is high quality dividend paying stocks. William, thanks for that great question. Until next time, this is John Pugliano from Investable Wealth and the Wealth Studying Podcast.
1: Yeah, I've always been mystified with this. About the only place in the investing world that this makes sense to me is if you let's say you're stacking silver and you're doing it because you believe that one day you'll barter it. Then I think having more units makes a lot of sense, because you have smaller units so you have a more effective barter medium, where if you were doing gold, an ounce of gold is what, 1,700 bucks or something. I didn't check it any time recently, but you know over a thousand, somewhere between 1,500 and 1700 bucks, I guess, is what it's been kind of floating around at. Um, that's, that's a lot of money. In a single unit. So I get it to anywhere else. It makes no sense. Including silver and gold if you're buying ETFs. You should invest in the, the commodity. Or the security. That you feel has the greatest potential. To go up. And just because it's lower per unit. Does not mean it has greater potential to go up. I've heard people say. Well I buy penny stocks. And $2 stocks. They can't go to zero. And they're already low. No that's not true at all. They can totally go to zero. A $10 stock can go to $5 just as easy as 100 can go down to 50 And a $10 stock can go to 20 uh, no easier than a $100 stock can go to 200 That's just not how things work. So when you make a, a return on your investment of 17%, it doesn't matter if you made 17% on a really expensive stock like Berkshire Hathaway and you had two shares, or you make 17% on 5,000 shares of a really cheap stock. It doesn't matter and dividends kind of work the same way even more clearly I will say that while I have a real hatred of the oil companies in a lot of ways Exxon is one of the best long-term stocks to hold as both a stock that appreciates across time and pays, pays pretty damn good dividends um, my son has I think about $10,000 worth of Exxon stock that started as 800 bucks uh, his his grandmother put that money into a drip, a dividend reinvestment program for him way back in the early 90s, and it's had a, a tremendous uh, value, and it's just something that's not worth selling as far as he's concerned right now. And, you know, again, it started out with 800 bucks, and no more money was ever contributed to it. That's a long timeline, uh, but, you know, I'm not big on stocks and equities right now. I am in a position right now of about 90% cash with money that's allocated for that kind of investment. So that's not even all my wealth. That's the money that's allocated to play in that casino. I'm sitting 90% in cash right now. I think that we are going to see a real reckoning here. So I'm not saying not to do this. I'm saying there is probably a potential, if you're concerned about the number of units, to get more units if you wait a little bit. Because there has to be a reckoning with this and as I said you need to understand it's really a time to be patient because it will happen overnight but it won't happen tonight is is the way you have to look at it and the 08 crisis was very visible in late 06 right there was a reason when I started this show In mid-2008, one of the first messages I gave was get your money out of the stock market. It was obvious. It could have went another year. I would have gave you the same advice. When you can see the storm coming, accept that the storm is coming, and it's coming. Uh, Next, let's talk about a well casing and trying to use it for geothermal heating and cooling for a chicken house. and I'll have some thoughts on this one.
9: Hey guys, it's Sean Mills with hackmyhomestead.com and the Hack My Homestead podcast and today I've got an expert counsel question coming from Mr. Martin. Martin says, "I have an unused well casing on my property that I would like to use for both a poultry water source plus geothermal heating and cooling of the chicken and duck poultry house. I have joined the Pumping Water with the Sun by Sean Mills Kickstarter campaign to learn how to pump the water, so this question relates to the geothermal aspect." The well is cased with 6 inch iron pipe, the water surface is 300 feet down, and the bottom of the well is 320 feet down. I'm building a 14 foot by 30 foot timber frame poultry house over the top of it. To provide cooling in the summer and warming in the winter, my idea is to run an aquarium air pump tube down below the frost line and just have it force the geothermally stable air up into the poultry house. I'm in Zone 6B in Eastern Washington State. Can you improve on my idea? My only reservation at this point is that the air pump I use for my aquarium in my house has an annoying vibrating sound. Thank you. Well, I can't really do anything about the sound. Uh, all the air pumps I've been around have that forced air vibrating sound, so I think you're just going to have to deal with that. But if you build that chicken house to an average height of about 8 feet, uh then you will have about 3360 cubic feet of air to cool so sizing the pump appropriately will be very important uh, most aquarium pumps that i saw online when i was researching for this question were about 75 liters per minute i know jack runs a bunch of aquariums maybe he knows of bigger aquarium pumps but most were in that 75 liters per minute range 3,360 cubic feet converts to 95,144 liters. So you would theoretically get an air changed every 1,268 minutes or 21 hours. Meaning if you ran it continuously, you would at least be able to get uh, or be able to replace the ambient temperature worth with earth temperature air once per day. So the real question is how much would 108,000 liters of 55 degree air pumped in at 75 liters per minute impact the 95,000 liter structure at ambient temps? And then the follow up question to this would be is this, you know, more cooling than just running a fan from the south side of the structure near the ground with a vent in the north side of the structure just below the eave of the roof where you're going to have Uh, A thermal chimney effect going on And you're pulling much cooler air in from the south side So I'm not an expert on Newton's Law of Cooling Or thermal connectivity of air But I would say that your program will probably work And I'd love to know what your findings are in winter in particular I got a feeling that a rate of 75 liters per minute Into a 95,000 liter structure Is not going to do a ton of cooling My guess is that ventilation would do a better job of cooling in there. I could be wrong though, Um, but it seems like just generally in my mind that 55 degree air when it's, you know, 20 degrees outside um, might be a better solution for keeping those chickens warm. And the chickens, of course, are going to throw off a lot of body heat uh, themselves. Uh, I have actually never had an insulated chicken house. All my chicken houses have been uninsulated and, and, and there's never been a problem as long as there weren't any real big air gaps in them. But since you've already got this well casing and you're already going to be using it for water, um, you know, actually as I'm thinking about this, I wonder if it wouldn't be a good idea to pipe water through the walls somehow and actually get some conductive cooling uh, from that or even run a mister inside where you get some evaporative cooling. Um, Those might be better usage per watt of energy uh, invested in that solution and it's just going to kind of depend on how much water you can get out of that well. Um, You know if that water will replenish itself at five gallons per minute you've got a lot of options with water and even running a sprinkler on the roof during the hot part of the day, uh, could be a thing that would create a lot of cooling for you. So, uh, those are real questions. I hope you put this in and I'd love to hear back and, uh, hear, you know, kind of what your, um, what your results are once you get this thing in. I haven't heard of anyone using, uh, well air, to cool an area or to heat it in the winter, but it's a great idea. Well, that's it for me today, guys. If you guys keep getting the questions in, I'll get keep getting them answered. Thanks.
1: Now, um, I'm going to come out of the gate with this, that Sean may have found some items that were marketed as aquarium pumps that do, in fact, move that volume of air. Those are, generally speaking, they are not... so. Um, there may be something out there that moves seventy five liters of air in a minute, but what that is actually going to be is a compressor and There are some small compressors that are marketed to aquarium and small pond enthusiasts uh, as air pumps, but they 're really comp- they 're tankless compressors. That you will you generally see them, they'll have like fins, like air cooled fins on them. They'll look kind of like an air cooled motor, which is in no sort of a kind of a way what they are. They tend to run really hot, and if you think an aquarium pump is noisy and annoying, these things are really annoying. It's an air compressor, right? And uh, I don't really know the volume of air they produce, and I don't know if it'll work in a situation. My gut is no. Let's talk about like, if you ask me, what is the best aquarium air pump I can buy I don't even have to think about it, it's an Aheem 400 and that is for 400 liters of air an hour an hour, so that's why I think that maybe Sean saw that, thought that number was really really low and figured they must have meant hours or maybe he was looking at a compressor if Sean's number is right, I agree with him, it's not enough volume of air the numbers that I would see coming out of something again like an Aheem 400 which is basically two 200 liter pumps in one casing with two separate vents, is it's a piss trickle in a pond, and you're trying to turn the, turn the temperature. Think of it like water. If you had a a, a pond, a five thousand gallon pond, and you were going to put five hundred gallons of water in it an hour, you might actually help hold or alter the temperature. But if you're going to do fifty, it wouldn't matter. It would dissipate. It's like throwing an ice cube in a swimming pool. Yeah, you know, I I, do, I love I love my kiddos and all, but I mean, remember one time they they froze like four gallons of water, and they went out and threw it in the pool, a twenty five thousand gallon pool, and thought it was going to drop the temperature because it had gotten so warm. Well, of course it it won't move the needle at all, and so I think without a significant volume, you, you you're not going to get much. I like the idea of getting an actual water pump in involved here and then using some sort of timed misting system or something like that, because you got to give dry-out time in between for the cooling, which I think you'll find for chickens is way more important uh, than the heating. They're, I mean, chickens do pretty well in a shelter in all but the coldest of cold environments with no supplemental heat. They are, they are little heaters in of themselves, uh, and you can also just simply give them areas where they can get warmer like if you give them shelter within the shelter they'll go in there if they feel the need and then their body temperature will help keep that smaller shelter uh even warmer for them and and they know what to do they they're very good at thermal regulation I don't know what will work here um the the way there's another issue too with an air pump I have no idea how far an air pump like that can push air through a tube uh, before there's enough back pressure that it it stops working, but air pumps just like water pumps have a head, right? How far they can pump, and generally it's almost like a reverse head because you're pumping water, you're pumping air into water usually. And again, something like the Heim 400, which is a very very good German-made, like top of the line pump. Uh, their spec is good to two meters of depth, or about six foot. So I don't know how that changes if you're, you know, because it sounds like you wanted to pump just below the 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 frost line, but you're pulling air from the structure and putting it into the pipe and then letting it come back up. Okay, that will work. So something like putting a fan down in the pipe is not going to work. My my best guess for how you could do this would be to get a pipe. Of smaller diameter, probably at about where it will take up about 50% of the available space in the casing, and use a blower, a fan of some sort, to blow air as far down as is reasonable, that will actually work, because that's going to have a limit too. And the longer the air is in the pipe, the more exchange of temperature you will get before it comes back out. And maybe someone else has some ideas here, but what I can tell you is an aquarium air pump of any kind is going to do absolutely nothing with temperature out of that casing. Absolutely nothing. It will have no effect in any measurable or meaningful way. But it has the the the, 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 the well itself has the capacity one way or another for it to work. Okay? So um, I think it needs a different engineering look at this than uh, a, an air pump. I just I just don't see the volume there. Again, 400 liters an hour from a top-of-the-line aquarium pump. Uh, I will say that if you want a quiet air pump and you don't want to spend a lot of money uh, for an indoor tank, uh, Tetra Whisper would be a good model to look at. They're very inexpensive. They are very quiet. And the big thing that you have to do with air pumps is they have rubber feet and those rubber feet need to go on to something that's going to be quiet in of itself and it needs to be level and then you'll get a much more quiet experience from an air pump. You'll probably hear the bubbles more than you'll hear the pump itself. If you have it sitting on something like a box which many people do like behind their tank or whatever on a table, a closed-in table or a closed-in aquarium stand, that's a box. What you're hearing is the, the, the vibrations of the pump are actually turning Uh, the box into a speaker and something as simple as cut a small piece of rubber, maybe an old mouse pad, and put that down and then put the pump on that and your noise will just go to almost nothing. Alright, moving on. Let's talk about what I want to talk to you guys about today. The year 1971. And I really, I've mentioned this, but I I don't think I've spent enough time driving home just how true this is. Again, there's a simple little website, just like a one-pager Super long scroll, and I recommend you check it out. And it the the URL is WTF happened in 1971. And 1971 is 1971 dot com. WTF happened in 1971 dot com. Well, um, as you should know, in 1971, Richard Nixon, in order to protect the most powerful and resilient economy in the world, the United States economy. Uh, reneged on our entire monetary policy in uh, Bretton Woods, and said that the dollar is no longer convertible into gold. Now, there's a second lesson here, and I, it's a short one, and you should have learned it a long time ago, but the most important, and this happened, like we just had the anniversary this week of this occurring. I think it was at the beginning of the week or the end of last week. Um, the word is Temporary. Nixon said he had directed the the Secretary of the Treasury to temporarily suspend the conversion of the dollar into gold, mainly because, uh, what's his name from France now, the name went out of my head, Um, was basically committing economic warfare on the United States, converting every single dollar that came into French custody back into gold immediately. Uh, Showing the weakness of the system in that we didn't have as much gold as we said we had. That's what was really going on. But we temporarily did it, and it's 52 years later this week, and it's still that way. There's nothing so permanent as a temporary government program, is the old saying. And it's an old saying for a reason, because it's true. But in 1971, when we ceased to peg the dollar to gold, the excuse, again, was that... um, you know, the French are, are converting all the dollars back to gold and creating a run on on the gold and the dollar. It's true, but it wasn't a real reason. It was they wanted to spend more money than they had. That's why. They wanted to spend more money than they had. And they wanted to do it in an unfettered way. And we, we converted over to a true 100% get-backed system by fiat. I don't like calling it a fiat monetary system. Because in many ways, as long as it was done with a modicum of responsibility, a fiat system would be better than what we have. I'm not saying we should have a fiat system. I'm saying a straight, true fiat system of the government simply deciding how many dollars need to exist at any one time and actually printing them uh, in many ways would then be checked by the economy itself and we wouldn't end up with trillions of dollars in unfunded liabilities and debt. Because the money itself would not come with debt, and that's how our money comes today. But if you don't, or if you're not the one that pays the debt, and the banks don't pay the debt, and the government doesn't pay the debt, you do. That's that's what inflation really is. It's you paying the debt. Then you don't care. Then it's ba 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 time to party. And if you go look at this website, you'll see things that you would expect to see there. You'll see things you would expect like productivity since 1971, the American worker is 246% more productive. More productive than he was or she was in 1971. But compensation is only 115% higher. And if you go back, that particular graph starts in 1948. And from 1948 to 1972, it was roughly a 90% increase in efficiency and a 90% increase in compensation. In other words, while not 100% locked, production and compensation were very strongly correlated until 1971. You would expect that if you look at something like the GDP, the real GDP versus wages and all of those types of things, income gains uh, and, you know, who got more money than who did? So uh, if you look from 1945 to 1971, uh, the, what I'm not saying that one class moved up higher than the other, but like the 95th percentile of earners, like people in the top 5%, the median earner, the, right in the middle, and the people that were in the lower 20th percentile, they were directly correlated. In other words, when the, the super rich got higher incomes, so did the super poor. They didn't catch up, but they maintained the income disparity wasn't there. And everything breaks in 1971. Again, these are things I would expect that if you went and looked at this, you'd go, yeah, okay, that makes sense. But what about incarceration rates? Incarceration rates went through the roof in 1971. Well, that that can't be related to this, but but it is, right? And you could look at it and say, well, you know, causation and correlation are not always the same thing, but everything everything happened and began its its super rise in 1971. Um if you look at something like the um the rates of type two diabetes per hundred thousand, they went. They began a meteoric rise in 1971. That seems like it wouldn't be related. Rents and cost of housing began a meteoric rise in 1971. That does seem like it makes sense, right? Um, how long a couple would have to save. A a portion of their income to be able to afford a house, and that doesn't mean because in 1969 people did exactly what they did today. They went to a bank, they said, Here's my down payment, this is the house I want to buy. The bank approved the loan, and they gave them the loan. It would take, on average, up until 1970, around two and a half years. In 1950, It was 2.3 years. In 1960, it was taking people a little bit more, about 2.6 years. By 1970, the number had begun to come back down, 2.4 years. So right in there, you're you're looking at roughly two and a half years. By 1980, it was up to almost four years. By 1990, it was up to five years. By 2020, before all the COVID stuff went completely nuts, it was right at seven years. Now, again, this is one of the statistics that when I tell you all of this is due to fiat and what happened in 1971, you're probably like, oh, okay, I, I get it. I get it. Um, what about the occurrence of peer review? The occurrence of peer review. So how many things were peer reviewed before 1971? Very, very little, and it went meteorically up. The need to have things being peer reviewed. I'll just leave that one for you to ponder. Um, the number of countries having banking crises. Uh, if we—if you take out the Great Depression, a big spike there, the banking crisis was very, very low, generally under 5% of countries experienced banking crises in any given cycle. And it was more like, you know, right after 1971, it up went to the 25th percentile and sits right now in the 15th to 20th percentile. Again, that's something you probably are like, oh, okay, well, yeah, it yeah, yeah, makes sense. The United States national debt. If you look at the national debt of the United States, it, 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 is, it is insane. The parabolic rise that began when? 1971. Again, you would be like, oh, okay, I get it. But it's, it's, it's not just money in of itself. How about how long you had to work, how many hours you had to work, To buy a share of the S&P 500. And that would be one share of stock in every company in the S&P. In 1971, you had to work about 30 hours to do that. 30 hours of work, you could buy one share in the S&P 500. Today you have to work about 120 hours. But again... Okay, I, I get it, Jack. That's that's you're still on money here. When you said everything. How about children per woman? So the average woman in 1970 throughout her reproductive years would have about 5 children. Somewhere between 4 4.7 to 5.1 over a period of about 50 years was the average number of kids. Today that number for the world, not just the United States, is about 2.5 and that's barely at re, uh, barely at a rate to keep population uh, from going into decline. In the United States, it's like 2 point3 right Trends in obesity among children and adolescents. if you look at the obesity rate in children and adolescents, this graph goes back to 1963 all the way up to 1971. It's basically flat. And kids started getting fat. And I know from being a kid myself in the 1980s, we didn't have a lot of fat kids. But I think kids were fatter on average than they were you know, in, in the 60s. <coughs> Today, childhood obesity is an epidemic. 20% of people aged 12 to 19, prime living years, are obese in our country. 20% of 12- to 19-year-olds are obese, and all the expansion of the size of our children and their health going downhill started in 1971. How about physicians and administrator growth? So there is some growth in physicians. It's so small, I can only estimate it on this graph. I would say looking at 1971 to... Uh, 2009, which is where this particular graph ends, the growth is somewhere in the neighborhood of 150-ish percent. It could be 200, it could be 125. It's very hard to tell on this graph because it's so skewed by the growth in administrators. In 1970, there was pretty much a locked correlation between physicians and administrators and their growth. In 1971, the divergence happened, and today... Administrators have, had, have grown in the health industry by about 3,300% versus roughly 150% the growth of doctors. Global production of vegetable oils. From 1909 to 1970, it was a very slow, but there's growth in it. There was growth in it. We were beginning to farm more of these crops. Exactly in 1971, the production of vegetable oil, which is like palm, soy, canola, sunflower, peanut, cottonseed, corn, rice, all those vegetables that we use, these seed oils, began a steep and dramatic incline. And it, and it only got steeper and steeper as time went by, right? Okay, now think about this. 1971, we changed to a fiat system and the production of seed oils explodes through the roof. Meat consumption. If you look from 1900 up to 1971, people ate roughly the same amount of chicken, pork, and beef. Okay? And there was some divergence. It was like a really hot period for pork during the war years because there was more of it available uh, and things like that. But in general, people pretty much were eating about the same amount. And by the time that the war was wrapped up, we move into the Vietnam years in 1964, There was almost an exact, like people pretty much ate one different meat each day. 1971 hits. Pork, beef, and all other forms of protein level off and do not grow at all. Chicken goes through the roof. 1971. That's got an economic tie. Why? Chicken's cheap. Do you know there were more heads of cattle in the United States in 1970 than there are today? There were about 45 million head of cattle at any given time in inventory. And by 2022, we were down to 30 million head of cattle. Oh, Jack, that's when they killed them all for COVID. Well, okay. In 2010, we were at about 29 million head. There's actually more now than there were in 2010. Don't give me that. It drops. Rate. The production of beef drops instantly. 1971. Um... Prison incarceration rates went through the roof. And you you can take almost any chronic problem the country has and go find a graph plotting it from, let's say, 1950 or further back, if you can find it, to as close to present day as you can get, and you will see a spike in 1971. Now, what I said about this segment, or the, the bullet point for this segment in the show notes is, if we are going to have an insurrection, we better know who the actual enemy is. So I want to correlate this to what I see going on right now. There has been a rash of like TikTok-style videos put out, montages, sad, slow music, people huddling around their little coffee cups, holding their knees, all young Gen Z types and maybe some younger millennials and I just don't know what to do anymore how can I survive My I have a 15 or a 16 or an 18 dollar an hour job and I can't even buy food and the one I saw that really set me off was because it was such bullshit they were showing like how much $100 bought in groceries 10 years ago and how much it buys today and the guy's like this isn't enough to feed me for a couple of days and I'm looking at it and going if you paid $100 for that you're an idiot and like half of it was like energy drinks or something And I still don't think it was $100 worth of shit. I could buy more food at a QT, which is a big, giant convenience store, like a racetrack here in Texas. I could buy more food at a QT for $50 than this dude had. But I'll let that go. Because here's what I got out of the whole thing. We don't want to live this way anymore. It's not fair. Wah! But the underlying connotation, and this does speak to young people struggling, because young people are always struggling. They always have been. A 20-year-old in 1970 struggled too. I'm sorry, it's not the boomers that did this to you. But that's the message. The boomers ruined everything. They took everything. The government needs to fix it. No. The banks ruined everything. The banks took everything. The banks are still taking everything. And we need to stop it. Okay? We need to stop it. We need to start operating outside of their fiat-based monetary system. That is step one. That is where Bitcoin and barter and everything else like it comes in. And it's still very limited in its impact. But it is a step. It is a step in the right direction. Because the goal right now is to convince you the government can fix this problem. The government cannot fix this problem. Now, in theory, the government could fix this problem by changing the monetary system to something that makes sense. But the government won't do that. Why do you think all this shit went crazy in 1971? Because it could. Because it could. Um, right now, I'm watching an incredible Netflix series. It's called Painkiller. It's about OxyContin and how that whole thing went off. I'm telling you it couldn't have happened without a fiat monetary system. So you, the, 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 the story, like this Purdue Pharma, so, for, for Purdue Pharma uh, the company was inherited by one of the heirs to the guy that built that company, a bunch of other companies. He let the rest of the family have everything else. All he took was Purdue Pharma. They had uh, something coton- uh, that was a drug, an opiate, that was used only for people like with end-stage cancer. Because you're not worried about them dying, because they're dying anyway. And he gets the company, they make a new uh, opiate, again, oxycotin. They don't call it, they call it something nobody's ever heard of. They run focus groups to make sure that they're not going to deal with the stigma against morphine. Because people hear morphine, they think death. They float the company along and they get into the regulatory approval process with the FDA. They run into a guy there who actually does this job and holds up the approval. Now you have to understand something about FDA approval, and even back when this happened, was already to this point. The FDA does no testing of drugs. The FDA does not test drugs. The companies that make the drugs, test the drugs, and give their test results to the FDA. And the FDA trusts them that they did that the right way, and then they approve or disapprove or say, hey, you got to change something, right? you got to do something else. And so this guy is holding them up. They invite him, like, into their company. They make him feel really important. They appeal to his ego. They bring him to a big conference. And it's not a gun if all of a sudden he doesn't, Turn around and help them with the wording so they can get it approved. And a year later, he quits his job and he goes to work for Purdue Pharma for lots and lots of money. Okay, all of this is enabled by a fiat monetary system. This all goes back to what's known as regulatory capture, where the idea is, well, if the FDA is overseeing the pharmaceutical companies, the pharmaceutical companies should pay for their own oversight. Sounds good on paper until... The pharmaceutical companies are putting so much money into the FDA and it's grown and bloated so much that anybody in the FDA is afraid to actually do anything to hurt the pharmaceutical industry because that's who's signing their paychecks. That's regulatory capture. That can't happen without a fiat-based monetary system. That can't happen unless these giant drug companies can take fictitious assets, borrow shit tons of money for almost no interest, and spend it into situations like that. How do you end up with a country that traditionally viewed fat as healthy and nutritious and coming from animals, and grow enough corn and soy and and, and other seed, like canola, garbage crops, that are mostly thrown away and only have oil extracted from them, look at how many acres it takes, for instance, to produce a thousand gallons of oil from sunflower or canola. How can we afford to farm land this way? Well, with a fiat monetary system, we can. That's how. The growth in physicians versus the growth in administrators. How can you create such a top-heavy system? You do it through a fiat-based monetary system. If you had an honest monetary system, you couldn't have a lopsided growth like that. It's the same thing in the education system. Look at the growth in how many teachers there are versus how many administrators there are in school systems now. How can we be doing this? Teachers, you want more money? Get rid of 75% of your administrators that are totally unnecessary and take their money. And, and do that math, if you're capable with your common core of doing math at all, and figure out how much more money you would have. You only get this in a fiat system. WTF in 1971, indeed. This is the real problem. And it, in pow- it's not that government is not evil. Just This is what I have to tell you about big government as a whole. All the people involved in big government as a whole, left or right, they hate you. They hate you, and they love power, and they love money, and they love control, and they feel you are too stupid to exist without control over you. But they can only grow to that bloated, ridiculous size in a fiat-based system. Gold was traditionally known as what? The governor of governments. Gold limited wars. You ran out of money, you couldn't keep fighting a war. You couldn't just print more. Same old story, all over again. This time, industrialized to no end. That's who your enemy is. Your government might be your enemy, but your government wouldn't be your enemy. Nowhere near to the level that they are without a fiat banking system that prints money at will. With that, I think we're going to wrap up today. I went way longer in that segment than I planned on. I hope you guys have a great weekend. I'll be back on Monday with an all-new episode. We'll dig into something on Monday more practical. Maybe we'll take a Tuesday and do something more in the lines of looking at current events. I I don't know who, but I know I'll have a guest on Wednesday, and they're always great. Uh Thursday will be a Just Me show, and then we'll, we'll do an expert panel all over again. With that, guys, take care. Have a great weekend.
0: Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A Dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way.